love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Not much I can say to add to the beauty of Paul's description of love there. This guiding description of love describes the key ingredient for whatever gift of service we might have. If you serve, consider your role, brother or sister, if you serve God's church as a leader or a servant or a minister or as a father or a mother or a friend or a neighbor, whatever capacity you serve, this is the guiding principle that God gives for what gives your gift value, that you include the ingredient of love. This message comes from Rock of Ages Lutheran Church in Payson, Arizona. Ancient Faith for Today's World. May 15, 2022. 1 Corinthians 13. There's an architectural movement that's called brutalism. It comes from a, a French art, architect and artist, and also the French word meaning raw concrete. And a lot of people hold on to the pun that comes across into the English word brutal. Brutalism is brutal. You see, it emphasizes raw concrete exposed materials and blocky designs. And often, it, if it has any windows, those windows will be small and very few. So brutalism is described by many as cold and soul-crushing, distorted, and something that doesn't lift your spirits in any way. I don't know what you feel about brutalism, but those who have to live and work in the buildings often criticize it. And yet, the, the architects who practice brutalism will receive praise from many of the elite magazines of architecture or praise from various groups because of their innovative and edgy designs. And yet, others will disagree, and they'll mock brutalism, saying it looks like a style that came out of some vision of a post-apocalyptic totalitarian dictatorship world where everything is cold and crushing. Why am I talking about architecture? Well, it's a good example of how there can be various ideas and views about what is excellent. And that can happen even in the Christian church. And I'm not just talking about different ideas about what makes for excellent architecture, but what makes for something excellent spiritually. When Paul wrote to the ancient Corinthian church, they were struggling with what was a good and valuable spiritual gift. Some who had certain spiritual gifts were looking down on and trampling over others and were boasting of their gifts. Still today, there will be confusion in the church regarding what is good and what is not. And those who have certain gifts will, in a way, dominate over others because of their ideas and think they are achieving something great, but it's really just boastful self-glorification. And so Paul writes in response to all of the backbiting, the pride, and the confusion over what is truly good and helps us to see how love marches victorious over self-glorification. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he's writing to believers who, like every congregation in the Christian church, had received spiritual gifts. Among them included the gift of speaking in tongues, 
prophecy, knowledge, giving generously, and all sorts of gifts. The gift of speaking in tongues would have included speaking in other languages, and it appears evident, perhaps also speaking in some celestial language that others couldn't understand unless there was an interpreter. And what was happening was the, the Corinthian believers considered that gift, the one of speaking in tongues, to be far superior to all the other gifts, and they looked down on the rest of those who had gifts from the Spirit. Maybe this is understandable. Uh, you could probably note, as historians will point out, that in ancient Greek culture, as they worshipped their Greek gods, they put an emphasis on having a direct connection with the divine. Even by Paul's time, the oracle at Delphi had been known for hundreds of years and was a big integral part of the Greek religion. She would go into a trance and would make utterances that were claimed to be connections with the divine gods. And so you can probably imagine how something like speaking in tongues might have been one of the more impressive gifts to the people of ancient Greece. And so Paul has to help them understand and put in perspective what makes a gift valuable in God's church. So firstly, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only resounding gone or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. Paul is saying that the key ingredient, the vital proportion of every spiritual gift is love. Consider the person who might have the, the gift to be a, an exceptional, excellent organist or piano player, but when they play their music, they do it and they act in a loveless way. What good is their gift? Or consider the, the pastor or minister who serves in God's church but can't get along with their coworker or doesn't love the person who they are serving. Everything they accomplish is worthless. Or it doesn't matter if you're just serving within the church or any other part of Christian life. Whatever your calling in life may be, if love is missing, what good is it? Maybe there's a teacher who's the smartest teacher that there ever was, but they're condescending to their students. What good are they? Or a parent might be giving generously, so they're providing everything for their child and they're earning a good income, but they don't love their child. Won't that parent really be worthless? Love is a key ingredient. And just as the, the Christians in Corinth begin to lose sight of how necessary love is, love can be lost in today's churches. In ancient Corinth, it was the gift of speaking in tongues that had such high value so that those who had that gift looked down on others and saw their achievements and their status and standing as far more important, that they could impress the world around them, even if they weren't serving the person right next to them and loving the person who was right next to them. Today in the church, there are some similar opinions. You don't have to look far to see there, there are some gifts today that are valued as far greater or more excellent than other gifts. Today it seems if you look, 
that the, the preachers and the messengers online who claim to have a direct utterance and direct revelation from the Spirit, who claim the gift of prophecy, are somehow superior or better than those around them. You only have to look at the number of viewers on their videos online to see that people treasure the, the claim of the gift of prophecy far greater than many other gifts in God's church today. And sometimes they'll even be condescending or looking down on those who don't claim to have a direct prophecy or revelation, but simply share God's word faithfully and with other gifts. Paul says, if you don't have love, you're like that, that instrumentalist who has a musical instrument, but you really don't even know how to use it or to make an appropriate sound. It's worthless. So how are we to use the gifts which God has given? Paul gives us a description of love here, a guiding description of true love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Not much I can say to add to the beauty of Paul's description of love there. This guiding description of love describes the key ingredient for whatever gift of service we might have. If you serve, consider your role, brother or sister, if you serve God's church as a leader or a servant or a minister, or as a father, or a mother, or a friend, or a neighbor, whatever capacity you serve, this is the guiding principle that God gives for what gives your gift value, that you include the ingredient of love. Now, maybe when you heard this list, just like me and everyone else, you might say, this is a wonderful, beautiful picture, and we desire this kind of love, and we know this is a good standard. But when you see this standard and this gift of love, maybe also, something came to your mind. And maybe your mind started to wander to the person who most recently failed to be kind, failed to be patient, the person who was boastful, proud, and dishonored you. Or maybe, maybe your mind wandered to the person who failed you in a miserable way, and like a brutalist architect, had designed this structure in your life which presented this huge shadow that sucked the joy out of your life and gave a soul-crushing shadow that overshadowed everything else in your life because they were not kind and because they were self-seeking and proud. But are you able to look past the lovelessness of others and to see what, what Paul describes here as love and to look in the mirror and to see it reflected back in your own life? Maybe there was a time where you thought you were achieving something vital or you were accomplishing something which people praised you for. But now when you reflect back, you realize it was self-glorification. It was not done with full kindness. It was not done with the interest of others. And it was not protecting or helping everyone, including the lowest next to you, but was seeking the praise of others. And maybe, like me, you can reflect back on, on those times and realize you were just building your own little brutalist castle 
for others to stumble upon the raw concrete of your sin. And maybe you might say to yourself, well, that's a perfect description of love. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. No love is perfect. I shouldn't expect that much, right? But Paul would have us look at this list in part so that we examine our own failures and our own lovelessness. And yes, we should strive for a perfect longing love. Is it ever good to dishonor someone else? Is it ever good to be proud and self-seeking and to be easily angered? Is it ever good to delight in evil and fail to rejoice in truth? This is good. God is love, and God demands, seeks perfect love, and rightly so. And shouldn't we as well? For all those times where our love was loveless and we resorted to something that failed this picture of love, we see self-glorification marching, ourselves at time joining the parade. But Paul also writes this, so that we might take our eyes off of the lovelessness, the self-glorification of this world, take our eyes, look above all the brutalist little castles that we have built and others around us, and to see what God in love has built. If this is the perfect description of love, we lift our eyes and see what God has designed, and it truly is excellent and good and beautiful what God in marvelous love built for us was built as he sent his son to this world. And the son of God started the construction of the most perfect building, the most perfect example of love. And it began with the cross which he hung upon. There we see no self-interest, no self-glorification, but interest for others. We see the kindness of our God protecting and loving, removing the record of sin. And with the cross, Jesus began the building of his perfect, beautiful church filled with excellence and love. And those who see the love of this building that God has built by his Son have their spirits lifted up because they know God has built it so they might become his own, that they might be forgiven, that they might become part of his church. Brothers and sisters, consider the great love of God in Christ, who is the cornerstone and by his death built this church and has built you into his temple. And Christ, the living God, the living Son of God, continues to build his church as he pours out his gifts in love to each and every one of us. Now, as those who belong to him, we are those who are now building up in love as part of the temple of God, his own forgiven people, restored in love to belong to him. And with the, the perfect love of God, we see, as he says, a love that never fails. God would have us take our eyes off of our own building, our own self-glorification, to see the perfect love of Christ, and to, with that perfect love of Christ, to begin to build in his name. Because that love will never fail. Paul says, it's a love that never ends. Love, God, who is called love, love never fails. Right now, we're looking at what you might describe as just the, the threshold of the building of God's church, laid down by the cross 
and the death of Christ and his resurrection. Christ is the cornerstone. But we're just looking at the doorway. When the door is opened and we look inside and see the full beauty and glory of God's church, we will see something everlasting and eternal. Because all the things right now, they won't last. Your greatest achievement, your smartest wisdom, the highest praise you have received from this world, it won't last. But what you have in Christ and what he has built you into in his church is everlasting. We see the description. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. Paul's saying, right now, we're like little children in our grasp of the beauty of God's church and of his love. But someday we'll see it. He says, For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Picture the ancient mirror, polished metal, not so clear. But then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. When the doors are opened to eternity, it's not going to matter how much praise you got in this world or how important you felt. It's not going to matter how much you trampled over others to give yourself glorification. But what will matter is that the love of Christ was seen in the lowliest person next to you, that you knew the love of Christ and you shared it with even the lowliest around you. You know, there was a famous guitarist who once said, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. This has happened. In many ways, that statement is true. The power of love overcame the love of power as God's Son came to this world. And his love for us, for you, was so great that it overcame his love of power. And he set aside self-glorification, lowered himself to love us all and to take our sins away on the cross. And with that, the power of love overcame the love of power and brought peace to this world. And now we are the example and we are the messengers of that peace. You know, brutalism is meant to convey the, the idea that happiness is just an illusion. Its design is meant to tell people that don't think you can actually achieve or obtain or have real joy in this world. It's just fake. But happiness is real because the love of God in Christ is real. And I suppose if there were a movement to convey that message, it would be called Christian love. And you are now a part of it as your living Savior pours out his gifts and his love on his church. We see how in Christ, love marches victorious over self-glorification.